Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at a small slice of American writing using the Library of America as my source material. In this episode, I'll be continuing my look at Charles W. Chestnut's works on the color line uh, with his book on racial violence, The Marrow of Tradition. Now, this is probably the most important example of black fiction from the later 19th century. And since there's really not that much from before the Civil War, I mean, you have Arnig and, and a few other novels, I, I guess. But, well, I mean, you have the abolitionist writing and the slave narratives. Of course, but I'm talking about fiction here. And after the Civil War, you know, this is really the corner piece. You're going to have a whole lot more in the Harlem Renaissance. And we already looked at a lot of those works in this podcast. But this is really one novel you have to come back to if you want to, to kind of get at this period of, 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 of writing, and especially from Southern black writers. And unfortunately, there's really not, not that much else that we can consider canonical from, from this period of time. It's a very rich, very detailed, and very multifaceted novel. It's also very thick and and it's a little dense, I have to say. It's it's only 250 pages. It's actually not that much longer than the the House Behind the Cedars. But this is a much more complex story than the House Behind the Cedars. There's a much broader cast of characters. There's a lot more going on. There's a lot of subplots. And thematically, it's much richer. I, I talked about the themes of the the house behind the cedars. It's really about the color line, and and sexual harassment. This novel has themes of, of course, the color line. Chestnut is always coming back to that theme. But you also have the propaganda of race, the media, lynching, racial violence, the psychology of slavery, class, uh, the ideology of poor whites, the the diversity of opinions among whites about black people, the the transition from reconstruction governments to redemption governments, on and on. That's just a few of the topics. It's there's even things about aging and and there's a crime subplot, and there's legal issues. It's it's really really rich, and it's it's actually kind of amazing that Chestnut was able to do all of this in in just a little less than three hundred pages, at least by Library of America pages. So it's really a testament, I think, to Chestnut's efficiency and his ability to see the relations between themes. Because if you can't see those relations between those themes, you're not going to be able to just, you know, interconnect them so efficiently. And in a way, when you're done reading it, it feels like a much weightier novel than, than it is. In fact, this is the second time I read the novel. When I came back to it, I was actually surprised. I was thinking, I'm going to have to spend four or five episodes on this one. Because I was thinking it must be 400 pages. No, it was only 250. So I'm only going to do it in two episodes. But nevertheless, it's I I remembered it as a bigger, not, thicker novel. Anyways, not you know it's it's no matter its size, it's 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 big, it's significant. So the novel is set in the town of Wellington, which I it's basically a fictionalization of Wellington or, or Wilmington. Sorry. Um. So well, I might confuse them over the course of these podcasts because they're they're so connected. Um. Now, 
Wilmington in 1898 was the site of a major race riot that left up to 300 black people dead, destroyed the last vestiges of the Reconstruction government in North Carolina. It was one of these holdout towns, but you know that still kept a, a kind of a Republican coalition. In fact, it was a fusion ticket with populists and Republicans, and that that put black people in charge of of the town at least. Politically, in fact, the town was run by whites, and this is a theme that Chestnut gets at, that despite all the talk about Negro domination over whites, in fact, it was whites that controlled basically the resources and the power of, in the town, ultimately enforceable with, with violence. So this race riot, it coming kind of really 20 years after Reconstruction ended, it, but it was still kind of a remnant. It was something that came out of that, and it was part of this building up of the Jim Crow South, of course, we know how this happened through disfranchisement and the passage of the Jim Crow um, segregation laws. But there was also violence was a big part of it, political machinations, the media, uh, ideology about race, and all that gets run through this novel. In, in, in short, when disfranchisement failed, violence was carried out. Now, Chestnut wanted to write an account that was more accurate and detailed about what took place in this riot, and this novel is the result of it. Many other accounts were more sensationalized and dramatized. This novel was much was kind of a response to the more romanticized, I don't want to say romanticized, but sensationalist literature and propaganda and journalism that was coming about the race, about the race riot in, in Wilmington. So anyways, it's, it's a great novel. It, it's really a must-read. It's something that should be taught in high schools, if you ask me. So, especially in the, this age of Black Lives Matter, to, to see how many of these, these issues are, are still, we're still dealing with. Okay, with that, let's, let's get into, in, into it. Um, okay, chapter one is called At Break of Day. So, Chestnut's gonna spend a lot of time in the first half of the novel really on kind of psychological issues. Um, the violence comes really at the end of the novel, and there's really a, an event in the midpoint that kind of marks this transition to violence, and that's kind of where I'll leave off in this episode. But really what he he focuses on in the first half of the novel is the characters, and he develops the characters and, and their interrelations and their connections. So I'll, I'll try to go through this as slowly as possible, so if you haven't read this novel, you can kind of understand how these things come together, or if you are reading this novel, you can kind of read along with me and, and keep all this straight because it, it can be a bit intimidating when you first read it uh, because you have so many characters. There's, there's probably like 20 important characters in this in this novel. So we start with the Carteret family. They're, they're of old Confederate stock, but like many other formerly prosperous whites, landed elite, uh, they, they lost a lot of their wealth in the war. And of course, that's because the planter class had their wealth in land and in slaves. And they lose the slaves with emancipation and the value of land decreased after the war. And all that contributed to the sapping of capital, which is the reason they were so desperate for northern northern capital. So this is a common figure. And, and actually, Chestnut has addressed, has looked at these kind of characters before. Now, this forces Carteret into the professions, so he eventually recovered a little bit. It bought a newspaper, the Morning Chronicle, and that's his job. He runs the Morning Chronicle. There's uh, Ellis is another important character, which we meet later, who works in the Morning Chronicle. He's an editor there, so there's a relationship between those characters. 
Um, but let's start to start with the Carterets. Now he had to marry into money to kind of pull this off, and his wife, Mrs. Carteret, or um, Olivia Markle, was her maiden name. So she's Olivia Carteret, or just Mrs. Carteret. She has a very important back family backstory. In fact, that's a so essential to plot. Um, but we don't really know it yet. But it's going to be some of it's going to be revealed to us in this first chapter already. So. The situation we're in is Mr. Carteret is thinking about his own past while his wife is in labor. And they were told by the doctor that she probably won't be able to have children, but she still got pregnant. And so despite being pregnant now, the child and the mother are at great risk. And this is probably going to be their only child. And yeah, it's a little bit contrived that the Carterets can only have one child. But, you know, Chestnut has to set this up um, that this is the only child this family is able to have. Now, we have several black characters in the household, the most important of which is Mammy Jane. And she raised Olivia Carter, Carteret, um, well, now Carteret. She, she raised Olivia, and she's able to tell the complex story of their family. And so Jane had been a mistress to Olivia's mother and Olivia's nurse as a child. And when her mother passed away, when Olivia was only six, her aunt, Mrs. Polly Ochiltree, so there's another important character to keep in mind, Mrs. Polly Ochiltree, who's an old white woman of unknown wealth, she came to look after Olivia and she started to care for Olivia a little bit. Mrs. Ochiltree went to Olivia's father and demanded that she basically be made the maid of the household and that they fire the current maid, a woman by the name of Julia. Sensing her power play, Olivia's father, uh, Mr. Merkel, told her that this would not happen. Mrs. Ochiltree left and an arrangement was made for her to raise Olivia. So she took Olivia with her. So there was some major scandal in the household involving Julia, Olivia's father, and Mrs. Ochiltree. So Julia, the maid, stayed and two years later gave birth to a child by Olivia's father. So this is what's known. What's known is that Mrs. Ochiltree took Olivia away from her father and this black servant Julia and that Julia got pregnant most you know most likely by uh, Olivia's father and gave birth to this child this child is named Janet after Olivia's father died Polly Ochiltree kicked Julia and her newborn child Janet out of the house so this daughter is Janet later she later marries a black doctor in town now you're going to hear this story a couple times actually in the story so this is I already said this is a very lean novel in a lot of ways there's a lot going on still chestnut tells this story three times from three different points of view first from mammy jane's later from mrs ochiltree's and then finally from olivia's father his point of view so we start this epic with a very very intimate personal story of the color line right and the the fact that interracial sex and happened a lot in, even after the civil war now the child is born, Olivia's child is born, and Mammy Jane examines him and notices a small birthmark under his ear, and she thinks this portends bad luck. So she goes to a conjure woman and does her prayers and does all these preparations to ward off, off the bad luck. Anyway, so that's chapter one. I, I know it took a while to talk about that chapter, but there, there's a lot of important stuff going on there. Now, chapter two is called The Christianine Party. So the child gets a name here. It's Theodore Felix. Everyone just calls him Dottie, though. 
so we'll just call him Dottie. And the Christian Party allows Chestnut to introduce some more of the characters that are important in this novel. So basically we get a window into two groups. One group is the kind of the white ruling class of this town who are all connected to Mr. Carteret in various ways or friends with him. So they go to the party. And then we also get a, some window into some of their black servants, this one in particular. So let's start with Sandy. Sandy is the black servant of Mr. Delamere. And Mr. Delamere has owned him since slavery. Um, now, the Delamere is, Delamere is a rich aristocrat. He's very old. He's from old planter roots. Uh, he's kind of remained to standing. Um, he's got a grandson. His son is gone, but he's got a grandson named Tom Delamere. And he's a very tall and handsome man, but he's prone to gambling. Um, but he is, is like the most attractive young man, the most suitable bachelor in town. Um, now, Delamere... Mr. Delamere, anyways, the, the elder, has a much more paternalistic attitude towards black people than a lot of the whites in town who, who have straight up hatred and hatred and and relish the thought of racial violence. Delamere is still a as racist as everyone else, but it's injected in a different way or comes off in a different way, and that is it comes off as this old planter paternalism. You know, Sandy for him is his his loyal servant almost like a son that he cares for and this is going to be an important plot later in the novel so we also have mrs carteret's half-sister clara who's essentially part of of the carteret family the major sort of looks after her and gets involved with her courtship and she's there she's likely to marry tom delamere that's what everyone thinks and they're kind of engaged in a courtship now the main point in this chapter is I think the different attitudes of the Delamere's and the Carterets, or at least Mr. Delamere and Major Carteret towards black people. There's a sticking point that comes up in the novel, and that is the keeping of money in the house out in the open. Carteret doesn't trust Sandy, essentially, or any black people, and Delamere stands up for the faithfulness of his servant. So Delamere, when challenged on you know Sandy being there and, and this concern about money, says... I don't believe, Major, that Olivia relishes the topic. I merely wish to say that Sandy is an exception to any rule, which you may formulate in derogation of the Negro. Sandy is a gentleman in ebony. And this is what the Major says in reply. Well, Mr. Delamere, no doubt Sandy is an exceptionally good Negro. He might well be, for he has had the benefit of your example all his life, and we know that he is a faithful servant. But nevertheless, if I were Miss Ochiltree, I should put my money in the bank. Not all Negroes are as honest as Sandy, and an elder lady might not prove a match for a bur burly black burglar. And then um, Mrs. Ochiltree kind of dodges that away. But this this also is be an important plot point later on in the story. So he's he's being very efficient here. But I think there and he's not just setting up this issue, this issue that Ochiltree has money in the house and that Sandy knows this, or at least is, you know was nearby a conversation where this was discussed. But also that Delamere has a certain attitude towards towards Sandy. So chapter three. Now, I don't know quite know why Chestnut does this. He goes back to, but goes back in time like a week earlier, right after he was born. Rather than putting this chapter, this make this chapter two and then do the Christian party later chronologically, he goes back, I think because he wants to talk about the personal relations and the characters and then go back and talk about the politics a little bit later. So that's what he does. But so this is actually set like a day or two after Dodie was born. 
Carteret returns from work, and we start to learn about the politics of this town. And what we learn is that a fusion ticket made up of populists and Republicans. Now, populists were the short-lived kind of farmer's party out of the West and very popular in the South as well. And and actually, this is one of the reasons why the South moved to disfranchise not just blacks, but also poor whites, because there's this fear of, of populism. Um, I think even C. Van Woodward talks about this in the in his book, The Origins of the New South or whatever, that it wasn't just black voters that were trying to be suppressed. White voters were also suppressed through disfranchisement. And that's, that's because of the 15th Amendment, right? Any law that took away the right to vote would have to pass the 15th Amendment test, which meant it couldn't be based solely on race. So they used these other means. Often that meant white vote, poor whites were also excluded, like literacy tests, things like that, poll, ta poll taxes. Anyway, but this fusion ticket won. And this put African-Americans and, and Republicans in control of the town. So the Morning Chronicle, this is Carteret's newspaper, their editors are unable to accept this situation and they want to use the press to help restore white supremacy. And they basically use the media to do this. And here's what Chestnut writes. Taking for his theme the unfitness of the Negro to participate in government, an unfitness due to his limited education, his lack of experience, his criminal tendencies, and more especially to his hopeless mental and physical inferiority to the white race, the Major had demonstrated, it seemed to him clearly enough, that the ballot in the hands of the Negro was a menace to the Commonwealth. He has argued with entire conviction that the white and black races could never attain social and political harmony by commingling their blood. He has proved by several historical parallels that no two unassimilable races could live together except in a relation of superior and inferior. All right, so that's the basic argument that's given. And what they're going to use is really crime stats to do this. They're going to push this idea of the black criminal. We'll get more details on this strategy later on in the novel, but that's what it's going to be. So it's it's very contemporary, actually. It's you know, In a sense, not much has changed in the way the media uh, sees black Americans. He's visited by two other white supremacists who are kind of in on the scheme, uh, General Belmont and Captain McBain. And now notice here with me that these characters are all using these old Confederate titles. I'm reminded of in The House Behind the Cedars how you had all these old Confederates dressing up as chivalrous, as knights and, and play acting at, at tournaments and all this ridiculous stuff. Here they're using these old titles that they inherited from the Confederacy. It's pretty gross, actually. Now, Captain McBain is, is the grossest of, of these characters. He's a poor, from poor, he's from a poor family, although he has money now, but he doesn't have like, he's not aristocratic, but he wants to move up. But he's the ra most racist character in the, in the novel. He's a, a clan leader. But we meet an interesting character here, Jerry. Jerry is the servant of Major Carteret in the office. And he's often privy to conversations taking place in the newspaper office, but he's not well educated. And mostly he's concerned about getting tips. And he even misunderstand what's going on. Like, I think it's something like they they give a toast, I think. I forget the exact details, but they, I think they give a toast to uh, ending Negro domination. And Jerry mishears this as toasting the end of Negro damnation. And he's like, well, why would they toast that? And he, so he really doesn't always understand what's going on, even though he's privy to these plotting and these schemes. Um, but anyways, the point of this chapter is that these white men agree to do something about the power of blacks in the town. Chapter four, Theodore Felix. Um, this was a more domestic chapter. We're back with Dodie and, and, and Jane and the others. 
Now, there's a new nursemaid who's come in to help take care of Dodie. And she's impertinent. She's not fully trained to accept white power, at least according to Jane. And we get this distinction. Jane grew up kind of from before the end of uh, before emancipation and kind of cared for these people their whole life. She's much more loyal, much more dutiful, kind of more accepting of her role. But this young black maid is got a chip on her shoulder. And Jane's attitude is this is like, she's going to have to grow this if she wants to survive. Quote, had this old woman who had no authority over her been a little more polite or a little less offensive, the nurse might have returned her a pleasant answer. These old-time Negroes, she said to herself, made her sick with their slavering over white folks, whom she supposed favored them and made much of them because they had once belonged to them, much for the same reason why they fondled their cats and dogs. For her own part, they gave her nothing but her wages and small wages at that, and she owed them nothing more than the equivalent service. It was purely a matter of business, and she sold her time for their money. There was no question of love between them. So that's a really interesting side plot here. This this character doesn't really appear too much else in the story, but the, Chestnut's always playing with these distinctions among whites and blacks, especially on class and, and age. These are the big distinctions. Those who experienced slavery and those who didn't, and those who kind of were that are poor and upward on those who are upwardly mobile or, or kind of climbing the, the ladder. And there's there's characters on both sides of this on the color line on both sides of the color line. So Dodie, despite growing well, has taken ill. And what happened is he swallowed some of his toys, like a rattle, a bit of his rattle. And the Carter, I calls the doctors. He comes in, he looks at him and, and says, I can't really get this out. So we're going to need to do an operation or he could die. So we need to call in a specialist. And, you know, I'm not good enough to do it. He says, we have to call in a specialist. And this specialist is a man named Dr. Burns. So this brings us to chapter five called A Journey Southward. So Dr. Burns is the man who's been called in to perform this surgery. On the train ride to the south, he meets Dr. Miller. Dr. Miller is connected to the Carterets because Miller married Janet, who is Olivia's half-sister's husband. Oh, no, Olivia's half-sister's daughter. No, Janet is the half-sister, sorry. Janet's the half-sister of Olivia, and she married Dr. Miller, who's the most important black doctor in this town. And he's coming from a trip from the north to the south, and he meets Dr. Burns on the train. And Chestnut spends a lot of time with the drama of the Jim Crow car. So when the car, when the trains move into Virginia, now Jim Crow laws apply. Segre you know, segregated cars. And so they first they asked Mr. Burns, is this guy your servant? And Dr. Burns says, no. And they says, well, if he's your servant, we can keep him here. But if he's not, he has to go to the Jim Crow car. And then Dr. Miller says, well, I paid for a sleeper. And they said, well, we don't have a sleeper in the colored car, but you have to go there anyways. And there's all this drama. And Burns, Burns had already asked Dr. Miller to attend and help with the surgery. So it's a bit embarrassing for him to then have to do that and he says well then i'll go to the jim crow car with with dr miller and then they said well no we can't have that either white people can't be there which isn't entirely true because poor whites could stay in the jim crow cars and, and chestnut talks about it. it's all very fascinating and very complex and just you know just a reminder of of how you know we you might just think of jim crow as like colored you know drinking phones, whatever, but it's really a lot of day-to-day -day tensions and frustrations and humiliations that go on with it, that went on with it. 
So Miller eventually has to go to the Jim Crow car, despite paying for the first class sleeper. He meets uh, a man who sneaks on board in Philly here. He'll be an important character later, and I'll talk about him then. But I think the important thing here is that Burns resists, and he gets all puffed up and moralistic about this. But eventually he relents. And this is not the first time this character, a minor character in the story, not that important, but twice he does the same thing, which is makes a bold declaration of how offended he is at Jim Crow laws. And then at the end of the day, just to make life livable, he accepts it. We also see here class divisions among both blacks and whites. Um, for instance, Miller is offended by smoking in the Jim Crow car, so he, which also has many poor whites in it. And he goes to the Jim Crow car and then he says, well, I paid for a sleeper. And not only do I have to, can't, I don't, can't be there, I have to go in the this car and they're smoking and I'm offended by that. And it's, it's very complex. And even though the chapter is kind of short, there's a lot going on in here. Now, we're also introduced to Captain George McBain, who, who's on the train as well. Miller knows him and hates him. It's established right, right away that Miller hates uh, George McBain because he's kind of a really odious and obvious racist. And also vulgar and, and kind of low class. Even though he must have come into some money. All right, so that's all going on. So this is a really chapter. You could pull out this chapter and just like assign it as an assignment or just read it as a short story. And there's a lot going on here. Okay, chapter six, Janet. So I, th I think actually now I'm noticing Chestnut's effort going back between the intimate and the familial to like the big more political issues like we go from the Jim Crow card to Janet which is again very focused so Miller's come home after this journey and he's going to go to the Carterettes for the surgery and join Burns but Janet has very abstract feelings for her half-sister she she sort of has this intellectual love for her half-sister and thinks Miller should do whatever he can to help save the child and she seems to hear to let blood over take the color line and the discrimination she faced. But she's in a very interesting position because blood connects her to the to the Carterettes and to Olivia, but color, but blood also divides them and separates them. So the, the veil is really alive and well here. Quote, And Janet was not angry. She was of a forgiving temper, but she could not bear malice. She was educated. She read many books and appreciated the full social forces arrayed against any such recognition as she dreamed of. But these two barriers between them, a man might have forgiven the one. A woman was not to be likely to overlook either the bar sinister or the difference of race, even to the slight extent of a slight recognition. Blood is thicker than water, but if it flows too far from conventional channels, it may turn to gall and wormwood. Nevertheless, when the heart speaks, reason falls into the background. Um, it's Chestnut deals with, has to deal with this all very efficiently, but it's so, um, it feels so real, this this conflict she's facing. She wants to, on some level, she, she's almost required to hate the Olivia, but she can't because she does feel this connection through her father to, to her. So then chapter seven is basically a rehashing of what happened in the Jim Crow car. Miller arrives to do the operation. He's waiting for, no, it's Burns arrives to do the operation. He's going to wait for Miller. So they're chit-chatting or whatever. Burns is arrives, and when Miller comes, he's he's not allowed in. 
And then we get this whole fight over will Burns perform the operation without his assistant. And Burns can do it without Miller, but he asked Miller to be part of the surgery. He asked Miller to assist. So it's kind of a matter of pride for him that Miller is not turned away at the door. And plus, he makes all these things like we, you know, up north, we, you know, we don't have the color line. And he really accuses the South of all their of being racist. And and then Carteret tries to explain that you don't understand how race works down here, you northerners. And finally, they compromise on how to equivocate. They they compromise on how to justify this. And the, what it comes down to is that Carteret explains that Miller is personally connected to his wife, and therefore it's a it's an affront to their pride on a deeper level. It's not just the color line. And then Burns is like, well, if if it's personal, then I can understand. So then he goes and does the operation. It's successful. But this is twice that Burns has equivocated on the color line to just make life easier for him. And I think this is all Chestnut trying to show the weakness of Northern whites when facing the reality of the color line in the South, that they will back away at the end of the day. So then when we got chapter eight, the campaign drags. So this is mostly about the whites again in Carteret's office explaining how their media campaign to push for white supremacy is going too slow. They decide to focus on black criminality. And this will be important later in the story. Chapter nine, a white man's N-word. I won't say it on this podcast, but it's, it's, right, it's there. Um, now, this, this chapter is still in Carteret's office. It's, it's merely an extension to it, to the previous chapter. But it's more about how they're going to use the media to push for the narrative of white supremacy. And here they have a little bit of extra ammunition. And that is there's an editorial in a Republican newspaper that's run by blacks on lynching. And what the article, the editorial said, it, it, it's deemed even by some people like Miller to be a bit of an impertinent uh, article. But and it's seen by these whites, especially these white journalists, to be a sign that black people are kind of getting it in their heads that they have all this power that, that they shouldn't have. Basically, they're, they're getting too arrogant. So what the editorial says is, first, most of the people lynched, most of the black people who are lynched are not guilty of any crime. And then it then it, that's one thing. Right. Because that's how whites justified lynching they said well these people are guilty so they're, they're going to be executed anyways we're just doing it you know making a point right we're, we're pushing the white supremacy at the same time that we're punishing a, a legitimate criminal but he goes farther the guy who wrote this editorial goes a little bit farther and says a lot of basically he says a lot of these i'm not sure the language he uses because we don't get the exact quote of it and he wouldn't have said it this directly i'm sure but it's essentially the blacks who get accused of raping white women and lynched for that. We're not guilty of rape, but rather we're part of consensual relations with white women that, and they got outed and then the white women accused the black men of rape. And then therefore they were thrown in jail and lynched. This is really too far for these editors and these propagandists in Carteret's office because it seems to suggest bad behavior among white women. So it's offensive to their daughters and wives, I guess. Now, that's, they think, that, so they decide not to do anything about it. They decide to put this in their pocket and wait for the right moment to then publish this article, editorial, and then respond to it and use it to build up public pressure against the blacks in, in the town. 
Now, Jerry hears all this, but again, he's mostly worried about his tips. And there's a couple of scenes like where I think it's Belmont would. Well, first, it's really funny because they're always ordering these. They're called Calhoun cocktails. They're like a special drink apparently made by John C. Calhoun or invented by John C. Calhoun. And I don't know if it's any good, but they need to drink the Calhoun cocktails because they're good Southerners. And, you know, Calhoun is their great hero and one of their forefathers of, of Southern culture or some nonsense like that. So they, they buy these drinks. And then like sometimes Belmont will say like, here's $2, get us the drinks, keep the change. And of course, Jerry would keep the change. But other times he would just give the money. And then Jerry's like, well, last time I could keep the change. This time he didn't say it. Do I get to keep it? So I'll just forget. And sometimes, and I think it happens three or four times in the story with this scene with the Calhoun cocktails. Um, now, anyways, that's going on there. But also, Belmont tells Carteret to watch out for Delamere. He's like, I know Delamere and Clara are dating, but Delamere's a bad guy. He's he's a gambler, and, and he's got to clean up his behavior before he wants to think about getting married. So then we get the press campaign going on for several months. Chapter 10, Delamere plays a trump. So Carteret goes to Delamere and gives a speech about drinking and gambling. Uh, now, Elliot, Ellis, sorry, Ellis is an editor at the newspaper, and he's secretly in love with Clara, and, you know, he's kind of the good guy. And this is something that Chestnut sort of did in The House Behind the Cedars, too, with with Frank versus the other suitors for Farina. And now this one ends up more happy in that Clara doesn't end up with Delamere. But he's he's got the secret love for Clara. Polly Oracle Tree also questions Carteret or questions Carteret about Tom or question. No, he questions Elliot about Tom and Alice knows that Tom's bad news because they're more of a similar age and he's more privy to the rumors about it. But Tom doesn't snitch on him. And and actually, Ellis covers for Tom a couple times in the story. But he sort of gives away with his eyes that the rumors about Delamere are actually true. And eventually these rumors get back to Clara, who is really bothered by, by this news. Um, Delamere, though, is able to sweet talk his way out of the doghouse for now. And Clara even ag agrees to a marriage date. And this essentially pushes Ellis out of the competition. So Delamere decides, you know, if the longer I don't marry, the, the more likely my, my reputation is going to ruin this. So he pushes the marriage date of, as fast as possible. Uh, to as early as possible, I mean. Chapter 11, The Baby and the Bird. So Clara is playing with Dodie, and the child almost falls out of the window. Mrs. Carteret sees Janet pass by in a carriage and blames her for her child's bad luck. The Millers, it turns out, were involved in both near-death experiences for her son. Jane also seems to believe that the boy is cursed and thinks that Janet may have put some sort of hex on the child because, of course, Jane knows the backstory of Janet and Julia and, and Olivia and Mrs. Ochiltree a little bit better than, than even we do at this point in the story. So she thinks Janet is, is cursing the boy. We know, if, in fact, it's the opposite. It was Janet who actually recommended Miller to do what she could for the boy. Now, what we learn here is that superstition sort of goes both ways in the South. This idea that we get maybe in the Conjure Woman that it, you know, whites were rational and black people had superstition. Well, that's not true. 
Chestnut is telling us here that there's actually superstitions on both sides. White Southerners have their own traditions and anxieties and superstitions. Mrs. Carteret's are based on the constant reminder of her father's sin and the complex color line of the post-war South. Chapter 12, another Southern product. So this late in the game, Chestnut has to introduce another character and a significant one at that. This, is, this man is named John Green. So John Green is coming. He's a black sailor. He arrives in Dr. Miller's office after having gotten to a fight with a white man who egged him on with racial con, uh, comments. Miller recognizes Green as the man who snuck onto the train earlier in the story back in Philly. Miller tries to warn Josh about his fighting ways, but he knows he's got that look in his eye, that behavior that he's doomed. This is the same kind of look that Mrs. that Mammy Jane noticed in the new servant that was brought in to care for Dodie. This kind of this chip on the shoulder that the younger people had. And I, I think Chestnut is actually kind of onto how the Harlem Renaissance generation is going to look at race issues. You know, Chestnut's a little of the older generation, but he understands this young generation and this edgy, edgier nature to them and this, this less patience with, with the color line. Um, but Miller knows that this guy Josh Green is probably doomed from his look. But Josh goes on and tells the story. His mother was killed by a clan when he was a child. And he got a, a look at the leader, and it's none other than McBain. Josh Green has vowed to kill this man in vengeance. Miller tries to push him from his murderous course, and he gives him some platitudes about the Bible and forgiveness and turning the other cheek and Jesus and all that. And Josh basically laughs us off. He thinks applying the Bible's laws is silly because whites never reciprocate. And this seems to be some commentary on the approach of some black leaders, such as Booker T. Washington, who say, kind of set aside the racial antagonism for Southern development and developing our skills as a people. Chapter 13 is called The Cakewalk, and we get a cakewalk here. But we start with some Northerners who are visiting the town, and that's actually why there's a cakewalk in the first place. They're, they're on tour, and they're getting a whitewash, pun intended, image of the reality of race relations in the South. Uh, these are people who are coming in really to invest. And Chestnut this is on page 555 of the Library of America version. You, they get this whole story on how... Uh, well, maybe I'll read a little bit of it. As soon as their desire for information became known, they were taken courteously under the wing of prominent citizens and their wives who gave them at elaborate luncheons the southern white man's view of the Negro, sighing sentimentally over the disappearance of the good old Negro from before the war and gravely deploring the degeneracy of his descendants. They enlarged upon the amount of money the Southern whites had spent on the education of the Negro and spent, shook their heads at the inadequate results accrued from this unexampled generosity. It was sad, they said, to witness the spectacle of a dying race, unable to withstand the competition of a superior race. The severe reprisals taken by white people for certain crimes committed by Negroes were, of course, not acts of the best people who deplored them, but certainly, but still a certain act of charity should be extended towards those who in their intense and righteous anger of the moment should take the law into their own hands and deal out rough but still substantial justice, end quote. In other words, trying to explain to Northern whites the reality of race in the South and equivocate on racial violence. Of course, the real reason for all this is to promote Southern industry. They then show off black customs in the South by showing a cakewalk. Now, Sandy is in the cakewalk, and, and he's kind of does these overdone motions and exaggerated motions. And Ellis looks at this and is kind of bothered by this. He thinks, maybe I don't understand. You know, I thought Sandy was, was kind of a good guy and a good Negro. But here in the, in the cakewalk, he's kind of acting all crazy. 
which is kind of a interesting side mo- moment where there's this concern in Ellis that I don't understand. I mean, that, or that these maybe the idea here is that these black servants are putting on a face that, that they could be a threat. And this, again, becomes an important plot point later in the story. Now, because of particip- because he participates in the cakewalk, Sandy is punished by his church. He's kicked out until he repent- repents. Sandy, though, doesn't think he did anything wrong. Um, Tom Delamere spends some money on him to let him get drunk after hearing about his trouble. All right. Um, chapter 14, The Meander- Ma- Maunderings of Old Mrs. Ochiltree. So we start to get some rumors about Mrs. Polly Ochiltree. Everyone assumes she's rich and hoarding money. There's Obviously, she has got some secrets in her closet. She's just kind of weird. She's getting old, and there's thoughts of what's going to happen to her money and when she dies and all this kind of stuff. Now, she's riding in a carriage with Olivia Carteret, and Polly starts to tell the story of how she protected Olivia's claim to her inheritance by kicking Janet out and her mother out of the house. This really horrifies and surprises Olivia because she never heard the story before. But what we know from as we go through the town is everyone seems to think Ochiltree is going to die soon. They humor her by saying you're going to live forever, but everyone thinks she's going to die. And in chapter 15, Olivia, it's Mrs. Carteret seeks an explanation. She, that's the name of it. Olivia takes Ochiltree into her home and sits her down and says, okay, tell me the story. Why would kicking out an illegitimate child protect my claim? Ochiltree is, gives her story and she doesn't give the whole story, but she reports that she kept tabs on Julia and their child, Janet. Now, Mrs. Mr. Merkel, Olivia's father, last words to Julia were about how she saved him. She said, thank you, Julia, for saving me from Mrs. Ochiltree. Julia is told that there are special papers locked away. And just at this moment, Polly burst in and then kicked Julia and her child out of the house before Julia could get these papers. Ochiltree stole the papers that Mr. Merkel was talking about. So this story is what she tells about how she saved the estate. It's still not clear why it matters. If Julia was just a mistress and Janet just a illegitimate child, what's the big deal? But the papers now gone seem to contain the answer. It, it's pretty obvious when you think back on it, when you get the answer. But it's I'll save it for the next episode. Then we get to chapter 16. Ellis takes a trick. During a trip, the Carterets realize that Ellis is actually a good companion for for Clara. We get some tour of the poor white neighborhoods, which have been having a hard time since the decline of the shipping industry here. And I think Josh Green is sort of a connection to this, this the black maritime workforce. And he doesn't do much with it. Chestnut doesn't do much with it. But we do have a window into the poor whites and, the, and especially this kind of post-industrial town. We got a little post-industrial town here. They are, now they're supposed to meet Tom Delamere, and he doesn't show up from his, like, room. So Ellis goes up looking for him, and Delamere's passed out drunk. Ellis covers for Tom. He comes down and says, well, he wasn't there. Clara's a bit suspicious, though, when Tom comes down later looking ill, claiming to have had a heat stroke. And Clara starts to distance herself from Tom and instead seeks private time alone with Ellis, where she tries to get an answer. And this, of course, very frustrates Tom Delamere because he thinks he's losing his, his girl. Um, so chapter 17, the social aspirations of Captain McBain. So now put out by his disastrous state, Tom goes out on a gambling and he runs into Captain McBain. McBain's own issue, he wants to move up in society. 
And he knows that Tom cheats at cards. So he knows how to beat Tom at cards. He therefore takes advantage of this and he eventually beats Tom. Um, by the end of the night, Tom owes McBain $1,000. McBain offers to let it slide if Tom helps him get into the Clarendon Club, which is kind of the, the club for the rich whites. Tom knows there is no way he can pay off the debts, so he's forced to recommend McBain. He prepares to go to the club, and he wants, wants to win back some of the money, too, but he has really nothing to play with. So he cons Sandy out of his life savings of $50, and then he goes to the club. He plays, but eventually he's caught cheating. The club members decide to spare Delamere. Really, they want to spare his grandfather. They don't care as much about Tom. And they force him to resign the club and pay back the 1500 he owes in debts to them. So all told, it seems he's in the hole for $2,500 at least, which is quite a lot of money. Be like forty thousand um, dollars now. So then, in chapter eighteen, Sandy sees his own haunt. So it's a strange night for Sandy. Josh Green meets Sandy, and they have some drinks. They get drunk. Sandy is stumbling home, and he sees someone just just like him walking ahead. He thinks he sees his own ghost walking ahead of him. Um, his haunt, H A apostrophe N T. He gets back and talks to Tom, who just denies anyone came before him. Tom then pays back $50 with a bit of interest in gold coins, and he even gives him a silk purse. This is a frame job that's being done. Uh, the details of who's, who, who's being framed and how come in the next chapter, the next couple chapters. But essentially, this is how Tom Delamere frames Sandy for the murder of Polly Ochiltree, which, is, which Tom did to get this money that apparently has been hoarded. But so this is a good place to leave off. Um, all the pieces are in place for the situation in Wellington to really explode. First with the, the murder of, of Polly Ochiltree and then with the, the propaganda campaign getting into fuller and fuller force. I, it's so thematically rich. I, I don't really know where to start. I, I'll just talk on like four themes that I think are really core to this novel. All right, so what are these themes? Well, one would be class. And Chestnut is very good on class lines, both among whites and blacks, and how there's social mobility on both upwards and downwards. Tom Delamere is an example of downward mobility to you know, from elite status, aristocracy to criminality. Uh, McBain, someone who's trying to move up in society despite having humble backgrounds. Carteret is someone who went from a planter class to really kind of a professional class. Miller is an example of an upwardly mobile black man who's going into the professions. But we have also stagnation in characters like Sandy who are kind of in the same status from even before, you know, when there was still slavery. So, um, and we get a lot of little windows of the poor black community, the poor white community. We have Josh Green is kind of a working class black character that we meet a little bit. So there's all this social mobility going on um, in there and class is really important and but it's fluid and it's flexible and and people are able to 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 move up and down the class lines we also have a lot here on a second theme would be heritage and traditions and superstitions it is called the marrow of tradition and the the, the heart of that is of course race and the color line but I, there's also all these traditions and superstitions again on both sides of of the color line mammy jane Olivia Carteret has a lot of it. 
Um, Sandy has his kind of superstitious beliefs too. Uh, a third theme to really focus on here is the media and how the media propped up white supremacy. Uh, so they, he, you know, Chestnut makes Carteret the major character, and he's an editor in a newspaper. And then the final theme, I think, would just be generally reconstruction politics and redemption. Um, you know, this is kind of like one of the last holdouts of the reconstruction types of governments, where blacks and Republican whites and some poor whites were able to form a a sort of progressive government in the South. And this is what was reacted against by the conservatives and the Democrats who tried to create these redemption, quote unquote, redemption governments. And this, this will, you know, when other means failed, violence was used. Now notice I don't say violence as a theme yet because violence isn't here at all. Yeah, lynchings are talked about, but they're just talk. It's just talk at this point. Now, the second poor part, half of the novel is going to be old violence. So Chestnut really divides this and he says you know the second half of the novel is going to be about violence so this is just more setting up the crucible of where this violence is going to come from in fact the first act of violence is white on white crime tom delamere killing polly ochiltree but um anyways that's it for the first half of the marrow of tradition thank you so much for listening um, i do recommend this novel if you have not read it it's probably the one of his works that you really need to uh study if you want to understand this period of, of black writing and, and to really understand the new south and the color line and race relations in the new south it's a really useful tool for that so again thanks so much for listening if you have any comments please uh review this channel or, or leave a comment or you can send me an email at 100 pagescast at gmail.com um so yeah thanks so much for listening i'll be back next time with the second half of the marrow of tradition